the rustling of leaves under the feet in woods and under hedges, the crumpling of cat ice and snow down wood rides, narrow lanes, and every street causeway, rustling through a wood, or rather rushing, while the wind halloos in the oak tube like thunder, the rustle of birds' wings startled from their nests or flying unseen into the bushes, the whizzing of larger birds overhead in a wood, such as crows, puddocks, buzzards, the trample of robins and woodlarks on the brown leaves, and the patter of squirrels on the green moss, the fall of an acorn on the ground, the pattering of nuts on the hazel branches as they fall from ripeness, the flirt of the groundlark's wing from the stubbles, how sweet such pictures on dewy mornings when the dew flashes from its brown feathers. Welcome to Season by Season with Alexis and Kit, the podcast that celebrates and reforges our connection to nature and the passage of time. It is our hope that through prose, poetry, history, and sound, this podcast will help to inspire your interest in the natural world around us. Together, Alexis and I will be sharing observations of the seasons as we see them. We'll be looking through the lens of the 24 seasonal divisions, or mini-seasons as we like to call them, based on the progression of seasons in the traditional Japanese calendar. the season of cold dew, or kanro. Spanning from October 8th to 22nd, our autumn journey continues through this riotous month. October is a symphony of permanence and change. The wild geese arrive from the north on their southward migration, chrysanthemums begin their bloom, and autumn insects sing their song. Cold dew is preceded by the mini-season Autumn Equinox and followed by First Frost. Cold dew is the height of the autumn season. As in every season, there's lots to explore in the sky, in the ground, and in our lives as we begin our passage into this special period. Who knows what we will discover through the orchard rows heavy with fruit and wild forests aglow with color. Let's set out. October, full of merry glee. So true. These autumn days make my heart sing. Lately, I've been starting my mornings with a hot cup of tea. The trees outside our windows have begun to turn all different shades, and I often see little sparrows hopping among the fallen leaves, seeming to greet me cheerfully. I love this cozy time of year. Oh, speaking of sparrows, that reminds me of something amusing I learned from our friend Hiro. Shall we take time for Hiro's Corner? Written as always by Hiro Akisato, and narrated by Ed von Atterkass. The seasonal word, or kigo this time, is kanro. 
It is the name of one of the 24 seasonal breakdowns that the ancient Chinese devised for the entire year. Kanro, or Hanlu in Chinese, means, on the face of it, cold dew. But it originally meant, as the cold weather settles in, dew turns into frost, signaling the arrival of deep autumn. The ancient Chinese further divided the seasonal breaks into 72 to note that seasonal changes happened every five days. So the seasonal breakdown cold dew is divided into three five-day segments. Geese fly in to become our guests, sparrows get into the ocean to turn into clams, and chrysanthemums bloom yellow. Geese fly in and chrysanthemums bloom are readily understandable, but do sparrows turn into clams? One explanation is that the ancient Chinese imagined that sparrows disappeared from the rice fields in late autumn because they splashed into the oceans to turn themselves into clams. Needless to say, the Japanese learned and adopted and adapted many Chinese things from the outset, including seasonal breakdowns and natural phenomena representing them. The question is, how have Japanese haiku writers contended with the fantastic idea of sparrows, Suzume, jumping into the ocean to turn themselves into clams, amaguri. Sparrows, having transmogrified into clams just eaten. By Kai Michiko. Kai Michiko, born 1960, is known for using colloquial Japanese, meaning often not sticking to 575 syllables as here. Here, she simply accepts the fantastic story from ancient times and says the clams that she's eaten are sparrows metamorphosed. Morning for not becoming a clam, dew on the chrysanthemum. Natsume Soseki, 1867 to 1916, is known for novels such as Kokoro, but he was also an excellent haiku writer as a close friend of the haiku reformer Masaoka Shiki. 1867-1902. The haiku quoted here, of course, assumes that the reader knows the Chinese sparrow-clam story. In Soseki's Japanese original, the sparrow remains unstated, it's just simply assumed. The picture represents a dead sparrow by a bloom of chrysanthemums. Not seeming even afraid to become clams, oh, sparrows by Kobayashi Isa. Isa, 1763 to 1827, is of course famous for describing what he saw around him in his daily life. Insects, birds, animals, children. Here, watching sparrows chirping joyfully, carelessly, he remembered the ancient Chinese story and thought that sparrows should be fearful of turning into clams to be eaten by human beings. As an aside, during his days, sparrows weren't caught and eaten, largely because of the Buddhist precept Thou shall not kill the sentient. Early Western visitors during the Meiji era were amazed by the abundance of birds and insects they found in Japanese towns and villages. In contrast, shortly after the war, when my family lived in Tobishima, a tiny island in Nagasaki, my father's subordinate would take me round with an air gun and shoot sparrows. It was my role to pluck them and grill them for my family and me. Here's another haiku, this time by Murakami Kijo. The clam has sparrow's freckles. How piteous. By Murakami Kijo. Murakami Kijo, 1865-1938, studied haiku with Masaoka Shiki, 
and later became one of the editors of Hototogisu, which translates into English as Kuku. It was a monthly haiku magazine named after Shiki. And Kijo's fame rose. Hototogisu remained the most powerful, influential haiku magazine for many decades. Now, you may wonder how Hototogisu and Shiki refer to the same bird. As it happens, the bird, Kukulus poliocephalus, comes by a variety of names, many of them directly coming from China. Masaoka Shiki's real given name was Tsunenori. For how Masaoka Tsunenori acquired the nom de plume Shiki, see my miserable and worthless book on haiku. As the seasonal example illustrates, there's a mystery to nature, one real and perhaps one invented. Whether as birds or as clams, try to enjoy the late autumn as it comes in its many transformative forms. Those sparrows, what a story they must have to tell. But say, it certainly has gotten colder these days, hasn't it? There's a definitive nip to the air in the mornings and evenings. Nip might be putting it delicately. It's definitely gotten cooler. Sweater weather is what we call this, I'd say. Just today, I pulled out my sweaters at long last, just in time for this mini-season. Not my arctic clothes for January and February, but everything in our closet has gotten rearranged and taken out. Koromogae is the word for this in Japanese, yes? Switching out the clothes for a new season? That's right. I think koromogae is such a beautiful word and concept. It's usually associated with early summer, but the sense of changing clothes with the seasons is the same. For this time of year, it's called nochi no koromogae, or the latter koromogae. Still, bringing out the warmer clothes really has a certain feel to it. Koromogai is a great kigo, or seasonal word, for these transitional times. By the way, listeners, we'll be releasing special bonus content about koromogai and a few other seasonal words later this month. Speaking of winter linens, sweaters are just what we'll need for our autumn walk. As Nathaniel Hawthorne said, I cannot endure to waste anything so precious as autumnal sunshine by staying in the house. Ah, so our autumn journey continues. Well then, what are we waiting for? It's a beautiful day, isn't it? There's something about the autumn sky. It just looks so blue. Yes, it's true, isn't it? There's many reasons for this blueness. The angle of our planet has changed, and the sun's path across the sky sinks lower to the horizon. This bumps up the amount of scattered blue light that reaches our eyes. And, as I remember we mentioned last episode, there's less humidity, which makes things clearer and crisper. And some people say that the colors of the changing leaves also helps to offset this blueness. In Japan, they often refer to the autumn sky as high. The word for this is tentakashi. Something about the light and the air make the sky seem so far above. Here's a poem which comes to mind. 
vast sky, vast earth. Autumn passes too. In this haiku by Isa, we feel the change of even vast things, such as the heavens and earth. There's nothing quite like an October sky, is there? Do you hear that? That's the call of the geese on their way south for the winter. It seems like geese are a herald of changing weather wherever you go. Yes, if you look up in the sky in the fall, wild geese flying in formation are a familiar sight. Their haunting honks can carry quite a distance. Just listen to them. They call to each other, and then perhaps one dives, and then the rest, like falling leaves as they come to land. It's a picturesque sight. Migrating geese are a sure sign that colder days have come. In Japan, they're a kigo for late autumn, and a beloved kigo indeed. The haiku poet Isa loved wild geese so much, he wrote more than 400 haiku about them. Wow, they really made an impression. Kits, do you have any favorite haiku about wild geese? Well... Wind is blowing, and so the geese are honking. Traveling geese, the human heart, too, wanders. Honking geese, I picture skies over ends. Since geese migrate every year, they're considered prolific travelers. No wonder they reminded Isa about inns. So we're not the only ones thinking of autumn journeys. These geese are on a journey of their own. Yes. Here in the United States, we typically see Canada geese around this time of year. Isa was probably thinking about white-fronted geese on their migration down from Siberia. Each autumn, these geese peck fallen rice grains from the rice paddies in Japan, and they can be quite deafening with their calls. They may almost sound like laughter. An early morning, yes, and a single goose, up in the white clouds, nothing more. The call of the geese reminds us that, as John Keats wrote, the poetry of the earth is never dead. In each season, nature is full of voices. Another autumn voice we may hear intermingling with geese calls is that of the humble bell cricket, or suzumushi. The bell cricket has a special song, high and clear, and, well, bell-like. The music it makes each autumn cheers those who hear it. Bell crickets are featured in a popular Japanese children's song for autumn, Mushi no Koe, or Voices of Insects.
Ah, the pine cricket began to chirp, chinchiro, 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 rin. Ah, a bell ring cricket also began to sing, rin, 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 rin. They chirped throughout the long fall night. Oh, the voices of these funny insects! As these lyrics hint, we can sometimes identify insects without even looking at them by the unique sounds they make. Writing about the autumnal snowy tree cricket, Nathaniel Hawthorne said, "If moonlight could be heard, it would sound like that." When we take the time to really listen, I believe we'll notice a special beauty in the songs of these insects. With voices as sweet and lyrical as any in the natural world. Speaking of sounds, what's what's that sound? Is it raining? The sky isn't dark. Listen, the wind is rising and the air is filled with leaves. We have had our summer evenings. Now for October eaves. The leaves are indeed swirling about us, but that's not quite it. The falling leaves almost sound like falling raindrops. Poets throughout the ages have commented on this. Here is a poem from the classical period in Japan on this natural phenomenon. The leaves are falling. In a house, one cannot tell, as they go drop, drop, whether rain is falling, or whether rain is not falling. Falling leaves have joy, sorrow, and comfort to them. Here's an anonymous poem which encapsulates this feeling well. The leaves had a wonderful frolic. They danced to the wind's loud song. They whirled and they floated and scampered. They circled and flew along. The north wind is calling, is calling, and we must whirl round and round. And then, when our dancing is ended, we'll make a warm quilt for the ground. This is the season of bright, beautiful autumn leaves, especially in temperate regions of the northern hemisphere, like where you live, Alexis. Yes, these next two weeks are typically when the leaves are at their brightest in shades of yellow, orange, and red. It's beautiful. Do you remember back in April when we spoke about Hanami and going to view the cherry blossoms? In fall, there's a similar tradition in Japan called momijigari, or autumn leaf hunting. As deciduous trees erupt in splendorous color, Seasonal enthusiasts take to nature to witness the spectacular sights. It's a time for taking nature walks in the brisk autumn air. Here in the United States, we call this leaf peeping. As you say, it's a classic seasonal event to admire the vibrant foliage. Just as the cherry blossoms in spring remind us of the fleeting quality of life, so too does watching the autumn leaves change and fall. We admire the beauty of the leaves the most right before they vanish for the year. Fall leaves, fall. 
die flowers away, lengthen night and shorten day. Every leaf speaks bliss to me, fluttering from the autumn tree. I shall smile when wreaths of snow blossom where the rose should grow. I shall sing when night's decay ushers in a drearier day. There are so many trees that turn brilliant hues in autumn. Yet it's not just the colors of the leaves which have a particular sense of autumn beauty. There is also the fruit of the trees. The forest we're walking through right now reminds me of that. Last episode, we mentioned chestnuts and conkers as a symbol of early autumn. This time, I'd like to talk about another iconic nut of the deeper autumn season, the acorn. There's something so autumnal in watching squirrels hopping about, nibbling acorns and burying them. I have to admit, acorns are one of my favorite things. I know last time I said chestnuts, but it's actually acorns. I just got autumnally enthusiastic. (laughs) I find the shape and design quite beautiful and striking, and they are such a totem of strength and wisdom. Well, if you like oaks, there are many to choose from. There are some 800 or more species of the genus Quercus. And it should also be remembered that an oak is not always a tree, it may be a shrub. Environmental conditions notwithstanding, most oaks produce acorns. While it may seem that an oak puts off far too many acorns, so many animals consume them for food that it has often been said that the survival of just one oak takes 1,000 acorns. I've never thought about it that way. But yes, so many creatures rely on the fruit of the oak. Deer, rodents, and birds all call the acorn food. Oak has an important place in culture, too. Here's one example, which author Peter Young notes. In Celtic beliefs, the most sacred tree was an oak, which represents Axis Mundi, the center of the world. The Celtic name for oak was Daur, the origin of the word door. In a personal sense, it can mean the way into one's inner thoughts and spiritual understanding, promoting growth as a human being at one with nature. Mythologically, the root of the oak was regarded as the doorway to the other world. A druid was one who was oak-wise, learned in tree magic, and a guardian of the doorway. The door was not considered a place of endings, but of new beginnings. We talked about that last episode, too. Autumn as a season of new beginnings. Yet the steadfast oak remains. Cultures have found inspiration in the mighty old oak for centuries, for its strength, steadfastness, protection, and beauty. Old oak, old oak, the chosen one, round which my poet's mesh I twine, when rosy wakes the joyous sun, or wearied sinks at day's decline. I see the frost king here and there, claim some brown leaflet for his own, or point in cold derision where he soon shall rear the usurper's throne. I highly recommend the book Oak by Peter Young, by Reaction Books. They have an entire series on trees. 
I wouldn't mind adding that to my reading list. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> what? Acorny pun? <laughs> ah! We've arrived at the apple orchard. I have to admit that in addition to acorns, apples are another passion of mine. Did you know that apples are from Kazakhstan? Specifically, the wild fruit forests found in the Tianqian Mountains. The wild fruit forests. So lovely. You know, apples have a unique place in the hearts of many the world over. Monty Don, the British author and gardener, described his affinity with apples and autumn nicely. He said, As September rolls into October, it is as though all things pomological ripen in me too. You're right. The love of apples seems to sprout all over. Transcendentalist Henry David Thoreau even wrote an essay about his love for wild apples. Here's an excerpt. Apples. These, I mean, unspeakably fair. Apples not of discord, but concord. Yet not so rare, but that the homeliest may have a share. Painted by the frosts, some a uniform clear bright yellow, or red, or crimson, as if their spheres had regularly revolved and enjoyed the influence of the sun on all sides alike, some with the faintest pink blush imaginable, some brindled with deep red streaks like a cow, or with hundreds of fine blood-red rays running regularly from the stem dimple to the blossom end like meridional lines on a straw-colored ground, some touched with a greenish rust like a fine lichen here and there with crimson blotches or eyes more or less confluent and fiery when wet, and others gnarly and freckled or peppered all over on the stem side with fine crimson spots on a white ground, as if accidentally sprinkled from the brush of him who paints the autumn leaves. Others, again, are sometimes red inside, perfused with a beautiful blush, fairy food too beautiful to eat. Apple of the Hesperides, apple of the evening sky. But like shells and pebbles on the seashore, they must be seen as they sparkle amid the withering leaves in some dell in the woods, in the autumnal air, or as they lie in the wet grass, and not when they have wilted and faded in the house. It's a beautiful image, reminding us of all the different kinds of apples there are. And you know, this reminds me of the efforts to preserve heirloom apple species. One notable individual is John Bunker, a self-taught fruit explorer who locates, identifies, and preserves heritage apple tree varieties. He's alive and well, discovering forgotten apple varieties during his explorations of the fields, farms, woods, and towns of Maine. Sounds lovely, but not just lovely, important, so that our agricultural biodiversity can continue to grow and strengthen. Now I know. Apples and acorns. Two things which Alexis loves. But let's not tarry too long in the apple orchard. We still haven't reached our destination. And you'll need your strength. It's just beyond. 
I suppose I'll part from the apple orchards if I must, and leave these orbs for another day. This feeling brings to mind the poem by Robert Frost. My long, two-pointed ladder sticking through a tree toward heaven still, and there's a barrel that I didn't fill beside it, and there may be two or three apples that I didn't pick upon some bough. But I am done with apple picking now. Essence of winter sleep is on the night, the scent of apples. I'm drowsing off. I cannot rub the strangeness from my sight I got from looking through a pane of glass I skimmed this morning from the drinking trough and held against the world of hoary grass. It melted, and I let it fall and break, but I was well. Well, we're here. We've made it to the pumpkin patch. Kit, you know, the only way this episode could get more autumnal was to add pumpkins to it. It's true. You know, pumpkins are all autumn long, and not just for Halloween. There's nothing like an October pumpkin patch, though. It reminds me of a contented cat, resting happily in the sun and completely at ease with itself. A pumpkin lying here, a pumpkin lying there. Purple the narrowing alleys stretch between, the spectral shocks, a purple harsh and cold. But spotted where the gadding pumpkins run, with burst of blaze that startle the serene. Like sudden voices, globes of orange bold, elate to mimic the unrisen sun. It always brings back happy childhood memories for me, searching for that perfect pumpkin in the pumpkin patch. There's a local pumpkin festival every year, where there would be pumpkin carving contests, a pumpkin pie eating contest, and a giant pumpkin weigh-in. Seeing all those pumpkins together, in their oranges and yellows and even greens and whites, it's always such a cheerful scene. And there's certainly a wide variety of pumpkins here to choose from. Definitely. When I was a kid, I always liked choosing the largest pumpkin I could find for carving jack-o'-lanterns. I wanted their faces to be round and jolly. But now I guess I appreciate the smaller varieties. Like this little munchkin pumpkin. Isn't it cute? Aww. That's a good pumpkin to use for decoration. But I'm searching for something that looks a bit more... appetizing? Like this one here, a variety called Cinderella's Carriage. Oh, it's lovely too. I can see where the name comes from. Not only that, it's great for making pies or soups. Do you still carve them? You can carve them, but you don't need to. They're pretty picturesque pumpkins already. Carving faces in pumpkins is something I still enjoy. And did you know lighting pumpkins with candles is actually a tradition even older than Halloween in America? I remember reading something about that. And it puts me in mind of another poem. Oh, fruit loved of boyhood, the old days recalling when wood grapes were purpling and brown nuts were falling, when wild, ugly faces we carved in its skin, glaring out through the dark with a candle within. 
Of course, the fun doesn't stop when the jack-o'-lantern's carved. As you mentioned, pumpkin pies and soups are among the many delightful pumpkin recipes of the season. Is there anything you'd like to make with pumpkins? Later on, I'll share with you my method for roasting pumpkin seeds. They're ridiculously easy and really flavorful, too. They make a nice, helpful snack. Say, that's a pretty nice pumpkin you found there. Thanks. Pumpkin hunting at sunset certainly has been fun, but it's getting dark. We should probably be heading back home with our pumpkins and apples. It's getting a bit spooky out here. Oh, Alexis, don't tell me you're getting scared now, are you? If only there was a bit more light out here. If we had a full moon to guide our path home. That would be deliciously autumnal, wouldn't it? Unfortunately, the moon is pretty dark right now, but we'll start waxing again just after our current mini-season. The next full moon, the Hunter Moon, falls on Halloween this year. Oh, the Hunter Moon. The Hunter Moon. The full moon that appears in October after the Harvest Moon. A moon that gives light to hunters in the darkness. It's also called the Blood Moon, or the Sanguine Moon. Okay, that is pretty spooky. I know Halloween doesn't fall within this mini-season, but there's something downright spooky about autumn evenings. The color of the light, the sun beyond the horizon, and the mistiness to the air. No pulse seems to throb, no voice dares to sob beneath the gray calm of the cloud. No murmur. No sound, only white on the ground. There creeps the thin silence along, creeps near and more near, oh, so dim, oh, so drear, till I shiver as one who has stood by a beer, and the words die away in my song. After that eerie poem, I think you're right. It's time to head back. A warm, cozy kitchen sounds nice right now. Let's hurry home through the forest. Ah, uh, it's good to be back home. There's nothing quite like a cozy kitchen in autumn. And we've got everything here. Pumpkins, apples, and are those pomegranates and sweet potatoes I spy there? What an autumnal display. It brings to mind a saying in Japanese, Shokuyoku no Aki, the autumn of appetites. Mmm, talk about autumnal bounties. Look at these lovely sweet potatoes. Is there any more perfect taste of autumn than a roasted sweet potato on a cold day? It sounds like you're thinking of yakiimo, the stone-roasted sweet potatoes popular in Japan. Yes, I still remember the warm scent wafting from the yaki-imo truck that would come through my neighborhood when I lived there. Those roasted sweet potatoes were absolutely delicious in their simplicity. No salt or spices needed, just their natural, gentle flavor. Light and tender, baked to perfection. I think I hear the sound of the yaki-imo truck now. Ah, uh, but maybe that was just the sound of my fond memories. 
Let's bake sweet potatoes in homage of our sweet, sweet yaki emo memories in Japan. That sounds good to me. What about these pomegranates? Where did they come from? Well, the short answer, Kit, would be from a pomegranate tree. I guess so. Oh, maybe we passed some pomegranate trees on our walk. In California, there's an orchard that for years I thought grew apples, but it turned out they were pomegranates. Those red round fruits looked like big apples to me from far away. Pomegranates and apples do tend to be in season around the same time in our climate. And pomegranates can vary in color, from deep red to soft pink and even yellow, just like apples can. In fact, the word pomegranate comes from the Latin for seeded apple. Those seeds seem to be the reason that pomegranates are a symbol of fertility in many cultures. And in Buddhism, the pomegranate is considered one of the three sacred fruits, along with the peach and the citrus. I'm sure you'll remember too that the pomegranate has another connection to autumn, aside from being in season right now. According to myth, the pomegranate played an important role in causing the first ever winter. Long, long ago, when gods and goddesses still sat atop Mount Olympus, the beautiful Persephone was out picking flowers in a field. She was the daughter of the goddess of grains, Demeter, and her mother's pride and joy. Suddenly, Hades, the lord of the underworld, burst forth from the ground and carried Persephone off in his golden chariot. She was to live with him in his palace and become queen of the underworld. When Demeter learned what had happened to her daughter, her grief was so great that it froze the earth. Nothing new could grow on the land so long as Demeter's grief remained. This was the first winter. So terrible a winter this was that Zeus declared Persephone must be returned to her mother. But this turned out to be not so simple. While in the underworld, Persephone had eaten six pomegranate seeds. This bound Persephone to Hades, as the pomegranate seeds were a symbol of marriage. A compromise was agreed upon. For six months each year, Persephone would live with her mother, and for the other six months, she would live with her husband, one month for each pomegranate seed. Persephone's return from the underworld marked the beginning of spring, and began forever the cycle we now know as the seasons of the year. It's lucky I'm not Persephone, otherwise spring might never come. Who could stop at just six pomegranate seeds? It's quite a story, isn't it? It's no wonder pomegranates play such a role in mythology. No other fruit has seeds that look quite so much like rich jewels. It really does inspire one's imagination. If you buy a pomegranate, buy one whose ripeness has caused it to be cleft open with a seed-revealing smile. Its laughter is a blessing, for through its wide open mouth it shows its heart like a pearl in the jewel box of spirit. The red anemone laughs too, but through its mouth you glimpse a blackness. A laughing pomegranate brings the whole garden to life. Say, Alexis, those are some beautiful flowers there. Are we going to cook with them? These? These are chrysanthemums. 
They're pretty in the vase, but I believe they also have a place at the table too. Chrysanthemum tea has been enjoyed for centuries and is now touted for its antioxidant properties. Or if you'd like something a little stronger, there's even chrysanthemum wine, which is usually drunk around this time of year as part of the Double Ninth Festival. The Double Ninth Festival? Yes, that's a festival celebrated in China on the ninth day of the ninth lunar month. This year, 2020, that's October 25th. Drinking chrysanthemum wine on this day is said to give one a long life. I know a little about chrysanthemums. The English word chrysanthemum comes from the Greek for golden flower. In Chinese art, they're one of the four gentlemen, which are artistic motifs that use plants to represent the four seasons of the year. Plum blossom for winter, orchid for spring, bamboo for summer, and chrysanthemum for autumn. In Japanese, chrysanthemum are called kiku, which was also the name of the haiku poet Isa's first wife. Isa wrote quite a few chrysanthemum haiku too. The garden's chrysanthemum blooms at great pains. Fallen leaves. Neck and neck with the mighty lord, Chrysanthemum. This last haiku seems to be a bit of social commentary from Isa. The mighty lord is no bigger than the Chrysanthemum. It's interesting to note that in Japan, the chrysanthemum represents not only autumn, but also nobility. The chrysanthemum flower is the flower featured on the imperial crest. It certainly seems to be a noble flower. With the chrysanthemum, our autumnal spread is elevated to a noble feast. This is the feast time of the year, when plenty pours her wine of cheer. And even humble boards may spare to poorer poor a kindly share. While bursting barns and granaries know a richer, fuller overflow. And they who dwell in golden ease, blessed without toil, yet toil to please. Fanciful journey this episode has been. Thank you for joining us as we explored what is happening in the sky, the earth, and our lives during the season of cold dew. In the season ahead, we hope you will enjoy the appetite of autumn and all the delicious flavors the season presents. Perhaps in this season, like Thoreau, you will begin to feel that you would rather sit on a pumpkin and have it all to yourself than be crowded on a velvet cushion. In this episode, some of the seasonal words, or kigo, we explored are autumn skies, sparrows turning into clams, sweater weather, nochi no koromogae, changing out clothes for the season, migrating geese, bell crickets, acorns, apples, pumpkins and pumpkin patches, gloom and mist, sweet potatoes, pomegranates, chrysanthemums, and autumn appetites. What are some other words you associate with these autumn days? If you'd like to share, email nourishingjapan at gmail.com and we'll post your seasonal words to our Facebook group. 
we'd like to extend a special thanks once again to Hiroaki Sato for his contribution segment, Hiro's Corner, narrated in this episode by Ed Von Atterkass. We would also like to thank Mara Rosenkrantz, Ariel Kurtz, Lori Schroeder-Kallen, Zachary Piper, Bruce Keynes, Boomer Barr, Alexander Michelson, Jason Werner, Laura Morgan, Carl Smith, Rose Booker, and Nikki. The works featured in this podcast are in the public domain or with permission from their creators. This episode, you heard poems and prose by John Clare, Isa, Basho, Minamoto no Yorizan, Humbert Wolf, Emily Bronte, Lydia Huntley Sigourney, Robert Frost, Henry David Thoreau, Sir Charles George Douglas Roberts, John Greenleaf Whittier, Grace Denio Litchfield, Rumi, and Dora Reed Goodale. If you'd like to learn more about them, please visit our website, nourishingjapan.com. And in case you missed it, we've launched the season by season companion playlist on Spotify. Our playlist brings the sound and spirit to each one of our 24 mini seasons for you to enjoy all season long. From standards to jazz to lo-fi beats, this playlist will delight and surprise you. Just search for Season by Season Podcast on Spotify or visit our website. To once again quote Henry David Thoreau's essay, Wild Apples. To appreciate the wild and sharp flavors of these October fruits, it is necessary that you be breathing the sharp October or November air. What is sour in the house, a bracing walk makes sweet. Some of these apples might be labeled to be eaten in the wind. May your October be full of bracing walks and sweet flavors. We hope you'll join us again for our next episode as November frosts begin to set in. See you in another season.